Welcome to Shop Talk Live, Fine Woodworking Magazine's bi-weekly podcast. I'm senior web producer Ed Pernick, and joining me today are editor Asa Christiana, senior editor Matt Kenny, and special guests from the Modern Woodworkers Association, Diami Plotke and Rob Boyce. Now, as always, uh, I just want to remind folks to, uh, if you enjoy the show, to leave a five-star rating on our iTunes page, maybe even a nice comment, maybe even a not-so-nice comment if you want to give us some constructive criticism. Um, now, before we begin today's show, I think it might be appropriate to acknowledge the tragedy of this past Friday. We're pre-recording this, show's, uh, this show a week in advance, so by the time you hear this, the events in uh, Newtown will have occurred two weeks previously. Uh, as many of you know, Newtown, Connecticut has been home to the Taunton Press since its founding in 1975, and uh, we've received a great many beautiful messages from readers and listeners. Uh, the company is still family-owned. Our founders are here. Their families are here, and many of the company's employees not only work in Newtown but live here as well. Uh, we wanted to thank everyone out there in the ether for their continued concern and support in the wake of this, em- uh, of this event. And uh, uh, finally, before we move on, I think it might be appropriate to uh, take a moment uh, and have just a moment of silence uh, to recognize the folks who were lost uh, last week. Okay, uh, now let's move on to uh, woodworking-related stuff. Um, so as I said at the beginning of the show, um, we have with us today Diami Plotke and Rob Boyce. Rob, am I pronouncing your surname correctly? You are, yeah. Excellent. It's rare, actually. And are um, you pronouncing Diami's first name correctly? I, I believe I am. How about Diami's last name? They're both perfect. Diami <laughs> Plotki. Now, Boyce is Bois, French, wood, right? Your name actually means wood. Oh yeah, that's right. God. I named the blog The Boyce Shop, which in French would mean the wood shop. Nice. So it's a double entendre. Super Most people cool. don't get that. Yeah, well, it's I'm very cultured and cosmopolitan. Actually, Asa spent a long time um, Cheeto, mounting and, insurrections and, uh, in African And Slim Jims do not count as culture. They, they don't? Said, no. <laughs> no. No, but when you were in the Peace Corps, you spoke a lot of French, right? Yeah, that's right. There you go. Um, so you guys are here representing the Modern Woodworkers Association, and I think the first question to ask here is, for those who don't know, um, what is MWA and how was it started? Well, the MWA is an online and in-person organization that is really just about building woodworking community. We're looking to bring woodworkers together, share knowledge about woodworking, teach about woodworking, and really just socialize about woodworking, too. Um, That's kind of the short answer in terms of what the MWA is. In terms of how it came about... What what percentage of each of those? What percentage is socializing in the overall scheme of things? 90%. (laughs) (laughs) A little higher than it ought to be. Um, But that's a big part of it because woodworking can often be a solitary uh, pursuit. And what we found was that we knew each other casually through various social media, and we'd run into each other at woodworking events, and all of a sudden you'd meet these people you'd talk to online for months or years, you'd meet them in person for the first time, and it was like you'd known each other for a long time. So what we're trying to do with the Modern Woodworkers Association is take that feeling and open it up to more people across woodworking. And we're trying to do that not just through big national events like Fine Woodworking Live, but we also have lots of local chapters where we have meetings and can have local people come together and meet people and and talk about woodworking both online and in person and get out of their shop and meet other woodworkers. Yeah, I can remember when I started woodworking, one of the hardest things was just being isolated 
and not knowing anyone else that did woodworking. And it's even though you can read and watch stuff, it's so much uh, quicker to learn and easier to learn when you can uh, speak to another person who does the same thing and has the same passion that you do. And you can go, oh, I was going to try this. And they say, well, don't try that because I did that and it's stupid. It doesn't work. So or it can give you a better idea of what to do. What you do so, to me on a regular basis. Yes, I am constantly <laughs> popping into your cube and telling you that what you're doing is stupid. <laughs> that's, probably, that's probably why a lot of people take classes, you know, because you get that nice sense of community from, um, uh, from yeah, just doing something together. It's, it is a really good feeling to be out of your shop and with other people who uh, share your passion. Yeah, but it, this doesn't cost them money right do you guys have dues no we do not no dues so it might cost you hundreds of dollars to take a class but you can get a lot of that from joining your group absolutely you get a lot of camaraderie and and we try to just keep the conversation about woodworking going um we, we try to do it online but we also foster it coming in person but through our podcast and through the blog we just not so much this is the table i built but um talk about here's a woodworker this is what they do and just profile other people and keep the conversation about woodworking going so your name is modern woodworkers association but you like a lot of old-timey hand tools how do you explain that contradiction (laughs) well i mean i think in a lot of ways too it's it's about just promoting woodworking in general you know i think uh, even a lot of my friends they sort of you know they have this vision of some like old guy with a gray beard in a dusty shop somewhere pushing a hand plane around and we're sort of trying to promote that it's for everybody. You know, it isn't, it's not just your grandfather's hobby anymore. So it's a combination, you know, like I, I'm, I'm a hybrid woodworker. There are some other guys involved that are very much more, you know, hand tool woodworkers and some guys are, you know, machine only, but it's. I think uh, Daomi's got quite the uh, power tool collection, don't you? I do, I do like my machines. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's what I yeah, we hear that term hybrid. It's a f- it's funny to us that just means a normal woodworker. Yeah. It's like you take the best tool for the job. Someone along the way decided that was hybrid, like it was some kind of a weird thing. But someone, yeah, yeah. I mean, is that a Schwartz thing? Is that where that is, started? Yeah. I think so. it's like it's like oh, you don't use just hand tools. You're hybrid, but that's okay. It's okay to be hybrid. It's like that's just being a woodworker. You know what I mean? Grabbing the best tool for the job. It it actually is seems more unusual to me to be just hand tools or just power tools. That seems like the kind of more of the fringe thing, whereas the down the middle thing is maybe doesn't need a name. This is my push to end the use of the word hybrid. But anyway, you guys use what you want. <laughs> we'll never speak of it again. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> never speak of that again. So I, I guess the big question is how, how – now that we know – what you guys are about, the next question is how has the internet changed woodworking and where is it going? I mean, I think we're, I know we always have at Fine Woodworking, we always have this discussion about how um, are we, you know, is, is woodworking losing its luster and is the community becoming smaller and smaller and smaller or is it in fact becoming bigger and bigger and bigger? And will we have jobs in five years? That's really what I'm getting at. <laughs> yeah. Well, we well, hope so. Yeah, I certainly that's, hope so. That's kind of part of our charter, right? And that's where I was sort of going before. It's, it's about promoting the craft in general. And I, I personally believe it is expanding. And I think the Internet has a lot to do with that because I think that's, that's one of the ways we're getting kind of the younger generation involved in woodworking. That's, I mean, honestly, it's what they're accustomed to when they're trying to find new information now, right? They don't go read a book anymore. They don't go to the library. They're going to go to the internet first. And so if we have good content for them to consume and it makes 
the craft seem interesting to them, I think we're going to continue to grow, and that's part of what we're trying to do. Yeah, I would agree. I think the Internet on one level is certainly the entree into younger woodworkings, and on a base level, that's how we keep woodworkers growing and keep more people in the craft. Um, to speak to the greater issue of how is the Internet just influenced woodworking, personally, I think it's, it's done two things. is It's taken the solitary hobby I had and made me a little bit better at it because I've learned a lot more on the Internet. But it's also turned this solitary hobby into a network of really good friends who we just sit around and talk about woodworking with. And that's an aspect of it that I never would have had without the Internet. That's awesome. Actually, yeah, I think that the, uh, you know, from where we sit, we have a lot of ways to gauge exactly how big the woodworking audience actually is. And actually, as a whole, the audience is shrinking. It's steadily shrunk for, I don't know, since the mid-2000s, and it continues to steadily shrink in age. But on the Internet, I think what you guys are experiencing, it's actually growing. So there's like these two trends going at the same time, that overall it is a graying, shrinking hobby if you look at the overall demographics and trends. But on the Internet, the, the, the type of thing that you guys do, more and more people um, are climbing aboard. So it's a really positive, exciting thing that's happening i wish the other wasn't true you know that um but unfortunately more people are aging out than are coming in and we see that everywhere we see that with retailers schools manufacturers every gauge every woodworking magazines even you know the only place that it's growing is online really um it's still solid and healthy and i think always will be but it's not it had kind of a heyday when the folks who You've heard all this before. When the folks who had shop classes and grew up more comfortable with tools, um, you know, sort of came into their own in the 70s and 80s and 90s. Um, but that group of folks who read so many magazines and took so many classes and all that, that group of folks is and bought so many tools is uh, actually um, overall shrinking. It's a real challenge going forward. That's another reason why we wanted to have you guys on is that you are uniquely the internet is uniquely able in your organization to reach the next generation. So the work you're doing is so welcome and so fantastic uh, for, from our perspective, you know, do you, you and you're not for pay. So it's not like, yeah, these guys are pushing woodworking because they're trying to stay afloat. You guys are doing it organically. And just because, you know, just for the love of the craft, love of the craft. Well, wait a minute. I've heard some stories. What about, let me just put you guys, uh-oh. Mike Wallace style <laughs> under the microscope. Diami, what about the junkets? What about the news that uh, you folks have been receiving kickbacks from major power tool ma- I'm totally kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just want to make sure that part's down. on tape so we can tell my wife that all my trips are junkets and I'm not oh, paying there you for go. them out of pocket. <laughs> um, one thing I've noticed about uh, internet woodworking is there is – uh, oh, wait a minute. Before you say that, I have to take a picture of Tiami with his mic stand that I had to make yesterday in the shop. Uh, all right. Post this on the episode. Totally. On the page. Yeah, you can't talk while he's taking a picture. It doesn't I mean, work. <laughs> yeah, it's great. All right. Go ahead, all right. Uh, awesome one pod. thing I've noticed is that you do have places like the like the tra- traditional forms like Sawmill Creek and Wood Central uh, where what people talk about is traditional woodworking, the kind of stuff you see in all the different magazines and you know all that kind of stuff. But then there are a lot of places where young people – are doing very non-traditional woodworking. And what they're interested in making is like a place to put their video game console and or they're making 
a sword and shield so they can be Link from you know Zelda or whatever. I don't know if any idea <laughs> if I got that correct. Is that, but uh, I see that a lot, and it's kind of cool. That's you know it's not traditional woodworking, but young people are interested in doing woodworking. They just want to make stuff that's relevant to them, which isn't you know uh, the, the the pie safe from you know. Some old crusty dude's house. It's it's certainly our, our philosophy that as hey, an those old crusty dudes are our best customers. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean our customers. I meant like you know some dude that lived in the 1700s. You know, and uh, but they don't do a lot of LARPing, live action role playing. <laughs> yeah, no, that would be a great magazine. Fine LARPing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, to, to get to your question, as an organization. We're into any type of woodworking, and we try not to be focused on a particular style, on even furniture versus turning versus scroll sewing. There's a certain default in that the couple of us who are the the key founding members who have the largest role in the organization, our interest in woodworking kind of overlaps in the kinds of things we do. But we're not looking to segregate away from any audience in terms of woodworking. If, If you like working with wood in any way, shape, or form, we want those voices in the organization. Yeah, I, I actually, you know, I thought it was interesting you mentioned kind of the forums that focus on traditional woodworking. And in some ways, like, this is going to sound crazy, but I've sort of taken almost six months off of reading on the Internet anything about woodworking. Because one of the things I see is that it, it, some of those forums start to get, you know, everyone's breathing their own fumes, right? And it's like, all right, we're going to build another Rubo bench and we're going to put a Moxon vice. You know, it's like everyone's doing the same stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, what Diami's just talking about is is great. Like, I'd love people to use more imagination and stop just, like, following what everyone else is doing and creating this. Right. Um, That's the part of it I don't really love, actually, as someone who's committed so many years of my life to trying to empower people to do more woodworking is there's there can be a bullying quality to the whole thing where they sort of feel like oh i'm not a real woodworker unless i'm building a rubo bench and then they get they're not really ready for that bench or the techniques to build that bench that's a challenging bench bench for them and i think there's a lot of rubo benches out there that are unfinished or people have and paralysis by analysis maybe or something where they paralyze themselves because they feel the only way into the craft is through this kind of high-end way into the craft, which is hand tool techniques. It's tough, yeah. you know, for a lot of newbies, especially when the your first thing you got to do is build this gigantic air, you know, what what are those called? Uh, aircraft carrier of a bench, you know. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of folks where it's like you actually say, so what have you built? And it's like I'm partway through my Rubo bench. Um, you know what yep. I mean? It's like I'm still assembling my full set of Lee Valley and Lee Nielsen tools. Yeah, I think that's that's important. You know, it's just because somebody said it in a forum or somebody wrote it online or said it online. Anytime you hear that this is the right way or the best way or the only way to do something, that should be your first warning flag. So yeah. coming from someone who, you know, I publish on the internet, but I'm, I'm telling you, you know, use your imagination and don't, you know, don't just assume that because somebody did it one way, that's the best way for yeah. you to do it or that's the right tool to use for you. Yeah, when I started woodworking, I... I did go online a lot. Uh, this would be back in the early 2000s, uh, I guess, um, around 2000. And I went on there and I learned, uh, you know, at least I read a lot on there. And I guess I learned some on there. Uh, and the, but the longer I've been woodworking, I found that uh, the more time I spend in my shop, 
which I think is probably the most valuable thing someone can do is just get out in your shop and build. And make mistakes. And make, don't be afraid to make mistakes and don't be afraid to have to burn wood because that's, you, you'll start to get confidence and you won't be afraid to try things. And, uh, you won't, uh, you you won't have to turn to someone else as as often because you're willing just to try something yourself and learn Rob, that way. Just to follow up on something really great that Rob said, which is that uh, there's no one way to do things, and that's what my I strongly encourage people to use the tools you have, the tools you can afford, and the tools you're comfortable with, because with a jigsaw and a sander and you know just very simple tools, you can get incredible things accomplished. You should never let that stop you, the tools you own or what you're comfortable with or let someone else tell you, you know, because uh, there's so many paths toward getting a decent yep. result. Absolutely. And, yeah, later on you'll upgrade. But in the meantime, you're still learning. You're still building. You're still making stuff. Well, should we uh, head into our questions? Except for fine woodworking, you should buy that. Yes. We, oh, yes. that's an invaluable resource. Yes. <laughs> stop <laughs> what you're doing right now <laughs> and go God, out and get it. You guys are shameless. <laughs> Um, well, we're going to start off the show's questions uh, this week with a special focus on hand planes. So here we go. First question, we, uh, we actually this week, by the way, we also went into our knots forum uh, as a nod to those folks, uh, kind of looking for interesting questions there. So Michigan Jack via knots wrote, I'm trying to get really good at hand plane work. I've got my planes flattened, sharpened, and tuned. In general, they're starting to work well. But I have a question concerning setup. There's a big screw that ties the lever cap, the chip breaker, and the blade to the body of the plane. The cap has a flip lever with a cam action that tightens and loosens the blade for adjustment. How tight should this screw be? All right. Now, I'm going to just say... 32 inch-pounds of inch- torque. <laughs> <That's>, there you <laughs> go. That's you were waiting to break out that gem, weren't you? I just uh, thought of it now. Yeah. <laughs> um, I know when I started using airplanes, I tightened the bajunga-dunks out of those screws. Yes, yeah, so and that would be wrong. Mm. Yeah, a lot of yeah. people make that mistake um, is over-tightening everything on their hand plane. That, that screw is actually just a lever point. It's not actually holding anything down. It's just a lever point so the cam action on that cap iron can actually work. So you want it to be, you know, loose enough so that when you flip the cam, when you, when you flip the cam to the off position that you can take your plane apart, you know, but you want it tight enough so that when you do engage the cam action that it's holding everything down firmly um but not so firmly that you can't make easy adjustments you shouldn't right. have to struggle much to remove the, the plane. you should be able to while you're holding the plane with your hand on the tote just reach up with your fingers and turn it very easily to mm. adjust the depth but what i always look for in terms of practical how tight is it is yeah it's got to be tight enough so that it doesn't slop around and that when you when you go to plane with it, it doesn't move the blade at all, but it has to be loose enough for you to make those adjustments. Yeah. Uh, that's the, in, in practical terms, but there's no specific 32 inch pounds answer. No. Yeah. Although I'm sure that if we were to call Lee Nielsen, they could tell us or Veritas, <laughs> they could tell us because actually Lee Nielsen planes come and they say, you know, the, I can remember some of the instructions that it says the, the, the screw is set and you don't want to turn it more than X number of mm-hmm. rotations or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you don't want to mess that up. But, yeah, uh, moving that little – it's a lever point. And moving yeah. that lever point will determine how tight the cam right. part is. And um, so that is your adjustment for tightness of that cam action, um, which – 
doesn't need to be as tight as you think it does is basically what it is. People have it. So the cam, you're like killing yourself to flip that cam up, and it shouldn't be like that. Um, Who here is, I'm just curious, who here is a um, like sort of boutique-y, hand-plane junkie? (laughs) I know Kenny is. What do you mean? mean, Come uh, on, you've got a specific plane for shooting. Yeah, what do you mean? Well, not boutique, boutique, but, you know, well, stuff that we have to really save up for. Save our pennies for to purchase, like a Lee Nielsen. Yes, you know. I, I, yeah, I like good You're planes. A, you, you have a, a, but all the planes I buy, I use. I oh, sure, I don't course. buy stuff unnecessarily. Yes, but yes, when I buy a plane, I buy a nice plane. Are you guys, did you guys start right out with like the Lee Valley, uh, Lee Nielsen level, or did you take lesser planes and rehab them and tune them up? I've I've done both. My first plane was a Lee Nielsen smoother. I mean, I thought a smoother was a good place to you know make an investment. It is, but my jointer. Um, that was a lot of work, but I, I bought that used. It's a you know pre World War II Stanley. Yeah. Now I'm just lazy. I just buy new now. I don't have time well, for. Well, yeah, <laughs> the first two planes I bought, I bought them on eBay for like fifteen dollars each, and it was a Stanley four and a five. And I wasted so much time, you know, like three years trying to fettle that thing. No, I'm just kidding, but I wasted a lot of time, and they just still didn't work very well. And so I just said right then and there, I was like, I'm never doing this again. You know, I'm going to buy a good plane and. That's what I'm going to use. I don't want to be a metal worker. I want to be a right, metal worker. Right, <laughs> exactly. I do my, my, my joiner plane, which I don't use very often, but I do use it, uh, is a, a really old, one of the earliest uh, bedrock models uh, with rounded sides. And I bought that, but I bought it from someone I knew it was in good shape. So uh, I didn't have to work on it. Yeah, there are old planes like the bedrock variety that, uh, that have more to the casting. They adjust easily. And that's actually what the Lee Nielsen's were based on that you can turn into really, really good, a really well, good plane. And for certain planes, like my first block plane was that little garden variety Stanley you can still buy. That was my first plane. Yep, and I put a Hawk iron in there, which cost me a few bucks. But, like, in the end, for, like, 60 bucks, I mean, for, uh, for half the price of anything new and decent, I, I have a really good plane that I still use all the time. I had to do work on it. You can get really good used planes, old Stanleys and records, it's just I would always recommend that if you're going to buy one of those, just see it in person and test the sole for flatness and things like that yeah. and make sure you're not getting something that you're either going to have to chunk or you're going to have to spend hours upon hours working on. One little tip about that cap iron, how tight it should be, and that little screw and the that esoteria we dove into. Mm-hmm. Um, one good tip is when you make adjustments in your plane as there's backlash in that little adjuster and to bring it back and then forward so you take out all the backlash out of that thing you don't want your last adjustment to be backward because you're going to leave backlash in there that could cause the plane to sort of move back in use but it's not always bring that back forward again so you take out all the backlash and that helps reinforce the blade from moving on you as you use it it's also one of the reasons i buy new planes is that they tend to have a lot less of that backlash true you're spending a lot less time just spinning i just like that idea of earning it first with a cheaper plane and i don't know maybe that's i think the problem with buying a cheap plane that you have to clean up first is that you don't know what a good plane should be like yeah and what I learned cleaning up old planes is that I hate cleaning up old planes. <laughs> so before somebody goes down the road of buying a bunch of them with the intention of cleaning them up, I would say buy one, buy one and try cleaning it up, and you may find yeah. you, you'd just rather spend the money and buy a new one. Do you know what was – it's a little like the workout. You know the best thing about the workout is when you stop the workout. Um, that's why I like working out. It's how I feel hours later. During the workout, it's horrible, but um, it's a little like – 
that's why I like having struggled all those years because when I got a Veritas Black Plane and I got a Lee Nielsen number four smoother, it was like breathing pure oxygen. You know, that feeling was really great. So that's the only reason for the suffering, maybe, is just to. All right. Next question. Uh, for crying out loud, wrote, um, I've got a Lee Nielsen bevel up smoothing plane that I just love. Performs flawlessly with one problem. Adjusting the throat with the little brass lever beneath the plane's front knob is nearly impossible. Every time I try to loosen the knob to move the lever, the wooden knob spins freely, but the brass screw doesn't move. Uh, I've tried everything, but this just drives me nuts. Help. Now, so what, what he's talking about is with this particular plane and with others, uh, the front knob, you can twist it to loosen it. And then beneath that, there's a little lever you can move left or right, side to side, and that will adjust the position of the throat how closed or open the throat is. And as he's spinning this wooden knob, the brass set screw that passes through the knob um, is not moving. So that means he's unable to right. loosen or tighten this knob. So I've had the same problem and on I, my I know the solution. Lee Nielsen. And apparently, yes, Matt, you consulted some experts. Yeah, so before uh, we, went, we went all willy-nilly on uh, cooking up solutions to yeah. this, I called, uh, I called Dinna up at Lee Nielsen this morning. And this name dropper. That's right. Uh, <laughs> um, Dinab is, uh, uh, I don't know exactly what his job is, but he you know he knows all the tools, and he and he and he's uh, so he knows what he's talking about. Um, anyways, uh, so what Dinab said is that first of all, the reason that your plane Ed has this problem, and also this gentleman's plane has this problem, is because you've done something wrong. Actually, it wasn't me. It was Chris. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no. Uh, so what he said was that the reason why the wooden knob spins now is that at some point it was tightened too much. Yeah. And they use epoxy to glue the wooden knob to this round brass, brass plate. Yeah. And the, basically the epoxy bond has been broken. And what he said was uh, the first thing you should do and that, that what for crying out loud should do uh, – no, it doesn't say for crying out loud. It says for crying out loud. Lout. That's my typo. Uh, that's your typo. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, that's an odd name. That would be clever. <laughs> <laughs> um, is to call them, and they will send you a new one free of charge. So that's, and, a, that's a great tip that a lot of people don't know about, both Lee Valley Veritas and Lee Nielsen. They don't want you to struggle at all, and they actually lose a fair amount of money with this precise thing, which is just no questions asked, replacing parts. They, it's absolutely satisfaction guaranteed with those companies. And they just want you to send it back. Let them either fix right. it, or often they'll just send you a new one. Like, Matt, you just got a brand new vice screw for your twin vice. From Veritas, yeah. Yeah, because early on they had an issue, and they know it, and they just said, forget it. It'll just take a new screw that won't do what yours is doing. It's interesting because right. I have a Lee Nielsen uh, jointer plane that actually disintegrated on me while I was using it. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. Yeah. I'm wondering <laughs> yes. if... Me too. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Were you working um, in a vat of acid? Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. So actually, but I've gotten more advice for yeah, go ahead. this gentleman and also uh, for others with this problem. So while we were talking, he said, Denim said that in the meantime, what you could do is to take off the handle with this little brass, it's like a brass disc that also has a little flange that comes out from it, and that flange is threaded, and that's what the brass screw threads into. Mm -hmm. And he said that you could take all that off, drill a hole through the brass into the wood, 
and then screw in a brass screw. Sure. And what Dino recommend doing was, say, like, use a three-quarter inch screw, put it in about a half inch, cut it off proud. Three-quarter inches long. Three-quarter inches long. Oh, okay. So the head of the screw is gone. S- cut off the head of the screw and then peen it over some, which means to smush it so that it kind of mushrooms out. Yep. And then file it file. flush. And he said that would work and that would hold it and it, until you get your replacement part. Wow. Or if you just wanted to do yeah. that. Would you, you know. even do replace it if you did that? That yeah. mechanical attachment he, seems even stronger. Yeah, he said that it would hold uh, probably forever. But I also think, uh, that, you know, from uh, talking to Dinov and also from, you know, talking to, you know, uh, Tom Lee Nielsen and, and just talking to them and dealing with them in general, they want to make things right. So it doesn't hurt to give them a call and Dropped say. Dropped another name. Did you? Consult President Barack Obama about this as well. <laughs> I did talk to Barack Obama. Interesting. Yes. Interesting. And he doesn't know squat about woodworking. Yeah, he so said didn't help. know. He said, didn't help at all. <laughs> he said, "Thanks for calling, Matt. Again, yeah. stop it." <laughs> but I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, well, I, I thought it might be useful um, to send off before we get off of hand planes to offer up, like maybe let's say five basic tips for hand plane mm-hmm. success with the proviso that um, these tips are only going to be useful to you if your plane is already in, you know, decent working order. Um, if your plane is... Rusty and crooked. There you go. This <laughs> yeah. is not going to help you. Uh, so where would you guys... Well, I had another one of my great brainstorms, you know, and why I get the big bucks, is that mm-hmm. there's five of us, so what if Ooh. each of us comes up with one? That's pretty pretty incredible. You You guys want to go first? Let them go first. They can cherry pick the best ones. Oh, you're mean. And we can mock you. Give the background background for this. So basically what we're talking about is not if you have an old plane that's dysfunctional. There's a lot of things that you may have to do. This is like, yeah, the plane's very functional. It should be working well, but what are the things you need to do during setup to maximize its performance? What, What has helped you guys personally? Well, this isn't necessarily set up per se, but I've learned when it doesn't make sense to use a hand plane. Um, You know, I think people will use a lot of figured materials now, and then they can't understand why they're not getting good performance out of their, you know, $350 specialty hand plane. It's because that's going to be really, really tough to hand plane. Um, That being said, I do have a smoother that I put a back bevel on the iron for a bevel Mm -hmm. down, get a higher degree of uh, angle of attack. So that's, that's really the biggest thing I've learned over the past few years yep. is to just know your material. And when you're still getting, when you try it and you're just getting tear out or whatever, we're saying switch to a sander, right? Basically. Right? And that's, that's what I do. Or yeah. A scraper. I mean, I, yeah. I have yep. a drum sander for a reason. Yep. Random orbit, you know, it, it, sandpaper is great. It's the great equalizer. Yeah. yeah. But well, I don't know. I kind of disagree with that, but I, I think you can hand plane difficult pins woods. Versus tails. Heads, mm, yeah. yeah, pins versus tails. <laughs> That's something we disagree on. That's yes. good. Usually we don't. You can. I, I I I have been able to plane and Mike to Mike Pekovich too. Uh, plane very difficult woods. It, a lot of it depends. You have it is well above and beyond normal setup for the hand plane though. Like one thing you can do. This is what I was taught many years ago was uh, to get the cap iron. As close as, or the chip breaker, rather, sorry, the chip breaker, yeah. as close as possible to the cutting edge, and that will actually uh, cut down on tear out as Absolutely. well. A really yeah. fine, fine mouth and a really fine cut. And um, super sharp. Super, yeah, it's got to be super. That's, that's where sharpness really comes in. I mean, yeah. you'll find out right away. But, you know, to Rob's point, some folks aren't at that point where they can get their hand plan working right. like that. Yeah, so don't, don't, be, don't feel bad about putting it down and picking up the sander. 
So no I more don't in Rob's all. case, uh, yeah. gassing up the uh, the drum sander. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even have a drum sander. Yeah, for the record, I don't. There's a point at which I just don't bother. It's like I just go yeah. and grab the tool I know that works, and I'm not going to wrestle with my hand plane anymore. And, um, you know, the downside, though, of sanding is that you can get hollows and stuff like that. What you have is a tool that sort of flattens as it sands. But what I, all I have is a random orbit, and that can really create. So you've got to be careful with a real even sanding pattern, yada, yada. So number, well, number one, then, I, we were talking about this earlier, too. I mean, number one is figure out how to sharpen your plane iron. Yeah. Well, um, Rob, I think Rob's point is good. No, no wind. And when no to, when to say when. when. Yeah. Yeah. No yeah. when to say when. That's Rob's point. Safe sharpening, man. That's what I was going to take. You just blew it. <laughs> well, I'm going to start my tip by saying uh, the caveat that my go-to system is sanding. I mean, I have my planes. I use them occasionally, but I tend to use a plane when I can't sand it, rather than vice versa. Oh. So that being said, uh, my rather basic tip would be to wax the sole. I find that just that simple step makes it a, everything go a lot easier. Do you use paste wax or do you use a candle, like some folks say? I use butcher's wax, Me which too. I use a paste wax. Me too. I use paraffin wax. Yeah. I, yeah. You can drill a hole in it and put it right on a, yeah. on a wall. I use um, a special wax that's been harvested from the wings of butterflies. Do you? Oh. Yeah. I like yeah. to use earwax. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, but one thing uh, people might say is, well, is it silicone-free wax? And I guess if you were really hmm. – you could – I've used paraffin wax, which I doubt is so. I have no idea if it's silicone free or not. I've never had a finish. I don't problem think that matters much because you're planing off that layer yeah. of wood that you're riding on, and by the time you take a few strokes, there's not much wax left on there, and there are trace amounts of wax that would get on your wood. Yeah, I've yeah, I've never had. A and I often with that. will, because I never get a plane surface that has no plane tracks at all. If it's a real critical like Scrape tabletop, I'm often it. sanding with 220 and a sanding block anyway afterward. So. An, an alternative yeah, that uh, the the guy that taught me to make furniture had was a round block with a hole drilled in it and really tightly wound and put into that was like a T-shirt. And then he soaked it in uh, boiled linseed oil. And then after every stroke, he would just run it back over that that little wick. Wow. And that would always have linseed oil on it. And he was would, a madman. He was, yeah. After and, every stroke. Yeah, after, yeah. Boiled linseed is not good for anything else. So you might as well use it for that. That's what Tim Rousseau would describe as a broken man. <laughs> That's a little too uh, obsessive compulsive. He, he might not have done it after every stroke, but, you know, he, he kept it lubricated that way. Right. And, you know, if you use bowl linseed oil for your finish, it's definitely not going to be a problem. I resharpen after every stroke. Do you? Yeah. But, you know, that's me. I actually yeah. have heard of someone very well known who uh, sharpens after every three strokes. Come yeah. on. That's a person who doesn't build much furniture. Yeah, that's Whew. crazy. Well, you know, there is someone uh, we all know and admire his work who d- uses Japanese tools. Mm-hmm. And he claims that he sharpens, I mean, w- w- from what I recall, it was way more than I would ever sharpen. I mean, like every mm-hmm. five minutes or something. I'm going to say he builds about two pieces a year. I, you know, I don't want to say his name. I don't know. We can talk <laughs> about it later. Yeah, yeah we don't want to check anyone out of the bus. <laughs> yeah, I'm not so my it. tip's really quick, and it is a honing guide. And just because I think 90% of people's planing problems are sharpness. And there's been a lot of people who have been sent down that path of freehand, you know, sharpening. And if you get any, if you rock at all on that tiny bevel and you get any rounding at all, then as you go through your successive grits, you don't know that each one's getting to the tip. And then you never experience what true sharpness is, which 
Whereas if you have a honing guide and you lock in that angle and you go from your 1,000 to your 4,000, your 8,000 grit, you'll really find out what 8,000 is like. And a lot of your planing problems will magically vanish just by being sharp. And, of course, the back's got to be honed to the same level. But, yeah, so it's just a honing guide. It's, it's a great, another great equalizer. What sure. about your throat opening? Uh, that's what I was going to talk yeah. about. But first I want to say true sharpness is the tuxedo I wore to my senior prom. <laughs> oh, yeah. Was it burnt orange with those uh, flowery uh, uh, lapels that yeah. come out? Harvest gold. <laughs> yeah, actually, I, surprisingly, I actually did not go to my senior prom. Yeah. Isn't or that a surprise? So That's a shock. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say I that... I picture you in the Napoleon Dynamite one, walking down the street. That, with, yeah. a, with a bass wrapped up in tinfoil? Yes. Oh. Brought, <laughs> yeah. I caught you an excellent bass. Yeah. <laughs> is that what he says? Something um, like that. My tip, I think, would be uh, that make sure that the plane is set up for the type of shaving you want to take. So if you're gonna, if you're using a jack plane to take rough shavings, the mouth needs to be open. You need to bring the the, the chip breaker back some from the edge. But for smoothing, it's really important that tight mouth, that the chip breaker is as close to the uh, edge as you can get it, and then take really light cuts. And so make sure the plane is set up for the cut you're going to be doing. It kind of stinks to have to change setups all the time. It's nice if you have two smoothers. That's why. And, yeah. And the old one that, remember we were talking before about earning your stripes with an older plane first? The old one that I got from a guy for, like, working on his house, and he had two he gave me one. It was just a garden variety Stanley. That now is my, it's what I worked with for up till two years ago when I got my first Lee Nielsen smoother. Um, that one now is my rough work guy, and it stays set up for that. And then the Lee Nielsen is everything super tight, you know, and right. yeah. It's kind of nice to have more of a precious one for that final pass or whatever. I think that setup philosophy goes even beyond planes, too. You can do that with many tools as long as you can afford it, depending on what the tool is. <laughs> yeah, right, two yeah. band saws, two jointers, someone, two, someone two I, table Someone saws. I know who I will uh, chuck under the bus. Uh, Greg, I, I knew too, you were going there. <laughs> Greg Palini, who's one of our authors and a, a buddy of mine, uh, Homie's got way too many routers. He's got <laughs> routers. He's like, yeah, that one I just set up for roundovers. And that one is set up for chamfers. No, he's and, also nice, got though. the it's yeah. nice dado and table saw. And right. Jeez, I mean, I, I go into some shops sometimes and I see people with um, two table saws, one set up with a dado set and one with a standard blade. That is sweet. I mean, who could ever have that? But it's really nice Rick to have that. Well, my, uh, my, old, my ultimate shop would have a slider for cross cuts, <laughs> one table saw for rip cuts, yeah. uh, and one table saw for, cross, uh, for dados. Uh-huh. And one just to look good. And one just to be pretty. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's head into uh, our first segment uh, of the week, and this is going to be Smooth Moves, where we share our most recent boneheaded shop moves. What would you do um, with the brain if you had one? So I feel like, Asa, you, you put these guys on the spot last yes. time. Maybe we should go first now. Well, um, I'm working on that same stupid four tansu chest, so I feel like I shouldn't even talk because... I'm that's all right. You don't have to have a. You uh, haven't made any more mistakes move. while making that. <laughs> um, <laughs> not really. Nothing. I haven't been doing much lately. It's been so crazy uh, around here these the last few weeks. But um, no, nothing. There, just nothing comes to mind. I'm not trying to be high and mighty. I just haven't been out in the shop very much. I'll think of something. Go ahead. You guys go ahead. I'll think of something. Uh, Matt, you want me to go? Yeah, first? Yeah, go ahead. All I'll right. go after you. Yeah, Matt, so, you always have them. Come oh, on. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, so I've been making this uh, jewelry cabinet uh, for my daughter for Christmas, and I've been gluing up uh, drawers. Uh, there's, I think there's about 
13 drawers or something like that. Seven, oh my ten God. drawers maybe in the cabinet. Yeah. Ooh. What's a jewelry cabinet? Uh, I should have just made it really small. You know, and it's like, all right, your one piece of jewelry fits in there. <laughs> That's it. One drawer, many dividers. Right. Um, and so I've been gluing up drawers, and I in uh, yesterday morning I took some out of the clamps by the by the wood stove, and I noticed. Wait a minute, that one looks funny. And the front, I had put on upside down so that the groove was on the top. <laughs> and, the, and so, nice. But what, the, what I would like to point out, though, is that it went together with no problems. That's how good my <laughs> dovetails were. So, uh, how, how equal, how equally yeah, spaced, how wonderfully symmetrical they yes. were. So, fortunately, um, I had been using up an old bottle of liquid high glue. And so, I glued it with liquid high glue. And there is, you know, there's this. It's technically it's true that you can reverse liquid hide glue or hide glue generally. In practice, uh, it's not so easy because it involves a lot of water and a lot of heat and da 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 da. Eventually, I got it where it would come apart. Uh, it left a little bit of some. How did you do that? Like, what did you, I always wondered? What do you actually? How did you introduce the moisture and the heat? So what I did was first uh, ran it the joints under hot water in my kitchen sink for a while, mm-hmm. and then I had already I was working at home yesterday, and I had already had my uh, wood stove going, and so I just went then put it down on a towel on the wood stove, and it let more heat and moisture sort of wick up into it on a wet towel. Uh, and I didn't really get it perfectly undone, and the, I, you could also maybe get an iron and run it over some wax paper on the joint. Because I know Ed takes them into his Indian sweat lodge that he has at his house and uh, just waits in there until he's hallucinating, and then they're just about ready to... I'm I'm sure that someone out there listening is going to be write in and tell me that what I'm doing was wrong and there was a much easier way. I'm sure there is that, you know, there's some kind of magic, something that you could That's find. That's all right. So we'll There is. Something. It's called rebuilding. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, d- I did end up in my shop looking at, like, did I have spare uh, drawer parts? I was like, how quickly could I knock this thing out? Mm-hmm. Um, but I did get it apart and glue it back together. Um, did you have to wait for it to cool and dry? No, you don't. What do you mean? When you glued it back together. What do you mean? Did I have to? You wait? heated it up and moistened it to pull it apart. Oh no! Because I, I when I put it on the wood stove, it dried really quick. It's just more like you know that it was sort of surface wet. Uh, I did not wait. I just uh, glued it back together. All right. I, I had to get back to work. Well, I I had some scraps left over uh, from something, some cherry scraps, and I decided to build a basic, just a simple wall cabinet that we needed for something at home. But anyhow, it's basically a dovetail box, and the top and the bottom overhang the sides a bit. And the door rests in there. Um, the top and the bottom have angled rips, and they're supposed to angle in, you know, in a certain direction. And I so the edges are beveled. The edges are beveled exactly. So um, I just I don't know what it is. Sometimes, no matter how many times you check a setup at a saw, when yep. it's something that's angled, you inevitably end up ripping it in the incorrect at the incorrect angle. <laughs> you know, the opposite mm-hmm. direction. It's called human frailty. I just don't understand. So I ended up having to then rip it again to the proper bevel, and then that and meant... And then you ripped it right down the middle. Well, no, 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 but this, <laughs> this meant that I didn't have now enough room for my door to be inset, so then uh, I had to plane back, the, I had to you know, yeah, shave off about an eighth bevel. of an inch from the sides, the cabinet sides, so that, I could, <laughs> so that my, my whole door would sit in for... It was just the biggest pain in the butt. 
There's a, yeah. I've said this before on the podcast, but one of our art editors, Kelly Dutton, mm-hmm. uh, who's a great woodworker, has said, and this is really wise, uh, sometimes the solution is worse, worse than the problem. Than the problem. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. It, it, that's totally words. true because you start chasing other errors around the piece and you make the situation worse. Yeah. I solved it. It was okay. I've done that, and what I've done to stop that is I actually, I'll just freehand with a pencil draw the bevel on the piece. I did it. And then I put it on the tool yeah. and line it up with the blade and sight across the blade onto the pencil. It did all that. I <laughs> drew it That's on impressive. the end grain. You I don't drew it backwards. I don't. I don't. I don't know what I did. I <laughs> yeah. No. That's what re- is really weird. Sometimes it's a mystery, like that sock that floats around and it never has a mate. You know. <laughs> all and right. It also did glue the microphone stand and down I did glue. the table. As well. Yeah. Yes. So all right. So here's <laughs> the deal. We had. We normally only have four mics for this podcast. <laughs> we needed five, but we didn't have five mic stands. So last night, in a flurry of activity, you're a woodworker. I made a mic stand. I, I epoxy lovely a mic stand. Dowel into a big block of maple, and then the mic is in the top of the dowel. But some of the epoxy squeezed through the little screw hole in the bottom there, and it ended up sticking to our um, our uh, table that we record on. Um, yeah, a little slightly embarrassing, but not. Yeah, could be worse. Yeah, it could have you know, been worse. It's a fine woodworking if mic stand. If you put that in an art museum, just the wooden part. People would seriously. Oh, you could with the nameplate. People would walk oh, by yeah. that and be like, "That's the industrial military complex thrusting <laughs> up from the." You know I what totally I mean? Totally get it. Yeah, <laughs> I I will say that I went on plenty of dates before I got married with women to museums. That would they would take me to this nonsensical going? exhibits like this. Mm. Oh, I would totally say I understood. Oh, this is just brilliant. When I inside, <laughs> you're really thinking like, "What a bunch of baloney. it looks like a red." Square with a white stripe through it, but <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, who's next? I'll go. All right, all right. Um, Rob, I up. just I just picked one from the project I'm currently working on. There were so many to choose from. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's usually our problem too. Yeah. Um, so I decided to to veneer the drawer fronts for this table that I'm working on, and for whatever reason, I thought it would be easiest to just use my vacuum press to uh, clamp the veneer to the to the substrate. And because the vacuum press is kind of cool, too. I mean, I should have just used clamps and, you know, a couple of big calls. And one of the first things you always tell people is practice your clamp setup or, you know, whatever it is you're going to use to... Ah, the dry fit. Always do your dry fit. Always practice your clamping. And I'm like, well, it's a vacuum bag. What could go wrong? (laughs) Like a hole, for example, in the vacuum bag. So I had all my glue on. I had the veneers all ready to go. Put them in the bag. You know, started sucking air out of there and nothing happened. So... I essentially ruined the veneers. I had to plane down the uh, the drawer fronts and uh, start over from scratch. But you couldn't find the hole quickly. And I couldn't find tape. it fast enough. Yeah. I mean, I was able to then patch it, and the second time um, got it to work. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there was not enough time. The the veneers were already curling up on the top of. The were they drawer flat fronts. drawer fronts? Yeah, they so were. So at flat. least you could plane it off. That's good. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Not too much harm done. But you lost some nice veneers. I did. Probably I, all matched and everything. They were, yeah, yeah. they were sequenced. Yeah. But so it's, you're really they depressed. They were sequined? <laughs> <laughs> so yes, very, they were bedazzled. They were bedazzled. It's <laughs> <laughs> an odd choice for veneer. <laughs> well, Diami. And then there was Diami. That's right. Take your medicine, Diami. Yeah, yeah, traditionally the last guy that goes has the biggest screw-up. Well, I, I'll say this is the biggest screw-up based on the impact it had on me personally. Um, I was trimming out a window, and this was, uh, this was actually over the summer. This wasn't very recently. But I was trimming out my front bay window, and where the diagonal trim ties back into the front plane of the house, 
I was getting really fancy because this was exterior trim. So I was cutting bird's mouths to fit the trim over the adjoining piece. And I was doing it with an old port cable D-handle router. And I'm using an inch-by-inch flush trim bit with a little jig I made to cut these bird's mouths. And about two-thirds of the way through the day, I'm done. And the router's in my right hand. And I just swung it and dumped that spinning blade right <laughs> into my left palm. Oh, oh wow. And... The work came out fine, so I didn't screw up anything I did. Um, Let's see. But the only reason I'm still holding up my hand and it's not a giant gaping hole yeah. is because it was a it was a D handle router. My hand, my finger was off the trigger. It was still spinning, but it wasn't yeah. powered when it hit. So it it cu- cut oh. into my hand and just stopped. And oh, man, oh I yeah, see. I can see that scar. Oh, wait, how long ago yeah. was that? That was in. Looks like he actually had to get stitches. Yeah, it was in June, maybe. Oof. But yeah, the workpiece was okay. The workpiece was fine. Oh, yeah. Okay. yeah, and the and router, it, the router's okay. It just led me to buy more routers because now they all have triggers. <laughs> oh man, you're lucky. Gary, our videographer Gary Junkin wasn't with you. Yeah, he would have passed. He would have passed out. <laughs> he has a, a thing. It's it's tough being a videographer for a woodworking for a woodworking video because he if anybody if there is any blood, poor yeah. Gary is like he is out of the room. He like freaks out. Faster than you can, you know. Some <laughs> folks are just like that. They have a hard time. Well, I'll um, say there wasn't, I don't want to get too gory, but there wasn't much blood because the second it happened, you got I just, I put it. the router down, yeah. I put my gloved hand right over it, and I held it like that until I was at the hospital. Yeah. Um, well, that was because so, you didn't want to see it. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, but I managed to hold it all together. Don't, don't feel well. bad because I once put my finger into a spinning router bit. Mm. Yeah. It's, yeah, those close calls just let you know that. Danger is around the corner at all times, and um, it's they're good in a way if if it ends up being something that doesn't have a long term impact. You know, it's sort of it serves its purpose to remind you, you know, to stay alert. Absolutely, it's scary. We all get those moments, and hopefully, there's nothing permanent that happens. Um, well, should we go into question? That was a depressing uh, note. Why did I have to yeah. jump in with that? I don't mm. know. You guys have all, I'm assuming, done the thing where you've got the chuck key still in the drill press and you yes. fired up. I've done that. And the drill press was like at 3,000 RPMs. You know, I'm like, I'm lucky I didn't die. I've done it at low speed. Never. Oh, that's <laughs> scary. All right. Um, so next question, also via knots. This comes from a fellow uh, whose screen name is, uh, screen handle is Recruiter. And he says, I'm making a project that came from an old maple tree that we had removed a couple of years ago. I salvaged a few sections of it, made some boards from it, let it dry. One of the sections I'm working with actually shows a bit of tiger figure in it. What would be the best way to pull out the figure in the wood? I don't want to change the natural color. Um, I just want to let the little bit of tiger show through. So I went over to our esteemed art director, uh, Mike Pekovich. I wanted to get his reading on this. And Mike told me that um, if... You want to maintain the natural color of the wood and not get into aniline dyes that you can use to bring out the tiger figure. Um, he said basically it all lies in your surface prep. Um, the surface has to be as smooth and flat and tear-out free as is humanly possible. So he would sand it up through at least 600 grit, he said. Um, and then probably just... Um, uh, Let's, Use uh, an oil finish. An oil, oil finish. finish. Any yeah. oil-based finish. Sorry, I'm having yeah. a brain uh, yep. issue right now. The word you're looking for is oil. Right but, now. <laughs> yeah, right now. <laughs> but basically, Mike had said that it's all in your surface prep. You've got to get that as smooth yes. and blemish-free as is humanly possible. Because um, the problem with uh, when you get that really – you have figured woods and it turns out muddy or whatever. Mm-hmm. It doesn't turn out – it's because – 
more oil is soaking into certain parts of the grain as opposed to others. So if you really sand high, it closes off those pores all really well, and then you get the nice pop. I did a a little experiment on that once, too, because I I learned this tip from uh, Thomas Moser, actually. He heats up the boiled linseed oil. Talk about a name drop. Name drop. Oh, yeah, we go way back. But uh, I I use a lot of cherry. Um, (laughs) And uh, if, you know, it's a closed poured wood like maple or cherry, when you sand it to 600, I'll even go to 800, it can be tough to get the oil to really absorb. Mm -hmm. So heating the oil helps a lot. And I did run an experiment where I cross-cut it, and I could see that it actually did. You know, Interesting. Oh, you can see the level of penetration. Yeah. What do you use to heat it? I have a double boiler heat? that I stole from my wife. Um, or it's like basically a hot pot. Fill it with water and heat it up to, I think mm. I go to like 150, 160, something like that. So it's a lot more, it's a lot less viscous, so it's like a runnier, mm-hmm. a runnier And that's oil. less of a, just doing an oil finish on curly wood is uh, more of an elegant look, I think. You can really, really, if you want it to be super stripy, then you do the thing where you put dye and it goes into the end grain stripes more than, or you know, a combination of dye and pigment stain. And the way it penetrates and then you sand it off, it really leaves it super stripy. Very striking, yeah. Yeah, but that takes more test panels and trial and error, and that's trickier. And also is a louder look, in a way, mm. you know. All right, well, next question comes from, also from Knotts. Uh, this is Vinny Vitti Vici. I came, I saw, I conquered. I'm looking to purchase a sliding compound miter saw for cross-cutting and miter cuts, but I'm wondering if they are considered accurate enough for fine woodworking. Every one I've tried at the store always seems to have a little bit of blade deflection when fully extended. I've read that some people only consider sliders for construction purposes. I've also heard that 10-inch is more accurate than 12-inch. I really don't want to use a huge slot on my table saw for wide cuts anymore. I'd rather get an SCMS, nice acronym, huh? Mm-hmm. If they're accurate enough. Thoughts, comments, suggestions? Gentlemen, You please. are wrong, sir. <laughs> I think you can do it. You do? Yeah. Pins versus tails right uh, now. I'm, I'm not going to say I'm going to use tiny little pieces on my miter saw, but on a, on a wider piece, I'll definitely use, use no, a miter We're talking saw. cut, cross-cutting, let's say, a cabinet side square. Yeah. Yeah? You think? you got to have the saw tuned up right. You have to have a decent saw. Mm-hmm. What's your take? It? I would say no. All right. Why? Uh, experience. I just have not. <laughs> Don't chuck Diami under wow. the bus like that. I, I'll back Diami up on this. I mean, I have I yeah. have a 10-inch. Um, a sliding compound miter saw? Sliding compound miter saw. And it's it's just accurate enough. I mean, it, the capacity is only about 12 inches. So if I do need to cross-cut anything wider than that, I can't do it. I've, I don't really know of anyone that uses a 12-inch sliding compound miter saw in their shop. That, to me, is more of a construction tool that's, you know, mm-hmm. crown molding kind of stuff, and it probably is less accurate. But mine is accurate enough that it's it's dead square. If you were to find one that were to be accurate, I think the key you guys could explain to say if this is right or not would be that the sliding mechanism would have to have absolutely no slot. No slot. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well, they all have some deflection just by nature of it. it's a long mechanism that's reaching way out, and, you know— I I think that everything can work, you know what I mean, for sure. But I tend to go for the with the cross-cut sled for a variety of reasons. I want to say two things. One is how to get better results from your chop saw or sliding miter saw. But first of all, why there's just inherent advantages with a sled on your table saw. Um, squareness for me isn't really the issue. Both tools can get the work perfectly square. That's not it. It's just the quality of the cut. There's so much less deflection in a blade that is on an arbor in a cabinet saw than there is on the end of a long mechanism. And 
secondly, the workpiece is just held perfectly still as it goes by, and I can put zero clearance inserts in my sled to get rid of any tear out. Um, and a lot of that stuff you can do to a chop saw. So that segues into the second part, which is how to get better results from your chop saw or miter saw, which is to put a bed on it and a back fence that are zero clearance. Um, you'll get more accuracy. You'll get ba- you can ba- basically get rid of most of the tear out. Um, and it'll work really well. Also, another great tip is don't bring the spinning blade up back past the work again if you really care no, about don't that do cut. That. Yeah, let it move the workpiece away once the blade is down. Or if you can't do that, let the blade stop spinning before you pull it back up through. To, so To yeah. talk about your, your zero clearance on the miter saw, what you want to remember, too, is that on the table saw, you put your zero clearance underneath the workpiece because the blade is under the workpiece. Right. On the miter saw, the blade's above the workpiece. So that tear out that would happen on the bottom of a piece of wood of the table saw is going to happen on the top of a piece of wood yeah. on the miter saw. Yeah. So you can't really put a fence or a table on top of it. True. So a good strip of blue tape will go a long way towards oh. eliminating the tear out on the top tip. surface. But on the back edge, the you still saw. get the same Yeah, I, the zero clearance table is always going to help, yeah. but you, you really need the tape in conjunction with the zero clearance. No, I'm talking about a zero saw. clearance fence at the back. Yeah. Because that does blow out on both machines equally. You're, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But uh, that's I, cool. I would just be, the other thing I mean I would say to this particular guy is you've got the table saw. I'd be interested to know why he doesn't like the sled anymore. You know, because it might be that he's just struggling with the sled for some reason that we mm-hmm. could, we could remedy. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, or, or someone could remedy, and then he wouldn't have any trouble. So why you know if you don't have to go out and buy, you know, a, a sliding compound miter saw is not a cheap tool. So if he could you know save himself five or six seven hundred dollars by making a better crosscut sled. What I'll say in defense of the miter saw, though, mm-hmm. is that it's not a cheap tool, certainly. Um, but most woodworkers are also doing home improvement. Yes. And True. when you consider it in, in the, the whole house, that yep. sliding compound miter saw does a whole lot so more valuable, than just woodworking. So fast. So <laughs> the way I break it up is I love having the chop saw for... Um, I don't have a slider, but I have a chop saw. I love having it for... Um, Roughing out stock in the shop, it's great. You know, get roughing stuff to length. It's super fast. I could take out a, a um, circ saw and set it all up and everything on blocks and stuff, but it's so fast for roughing up stock. And then I use it for all those DIY projects around the house. And also, like on stuff four inches and smaller, I'll make butt joint cuts or um, miters and get really furniture quality if, every, if I have a good blade and everything's really good but on stuff wider than four inches i just wouldn't use that or three or four inches i just wouldn't use that tool i'd go over and get a furniture quality cut on my crosscut slide on the table saw it's just it's the perfect tool for the job um i don't know and tear out you don't have to have any blue tape or anything you know what i mean it's just it's good to go i would recommend a rate alarm saw those are cool too (laughs) what now rate alarm saw i have one i like it yeah I don't use it for furniture making, but I use it to rough out stock. I use it for around the house. Radio alarm saw, huh? It's yeah. kind of old school. You it use is. that while you're watching old episodes of Matlock? <laughs> <laughs> or Murder, She Wrote. Right. Yeah. I can only use it before 4 o'clock because that, that's when my wife and I go eat it's dinner. It's good for the early bird. Yeah, for the early bird special. Um, all right. Well, let's let's head into our next segment uh, of the week. And... Um, This is going to be all-time favorite tool of all time for this week. Our regular segment where the lovesick editors of Fine Woodworking sing the praises of their loveliest, most cherished tools uh, to the tune of Tchaikovsky's Romeo and Juliet. Um, So let's start with... 
I want to start with Rob. All right. I picked a hand tool just to mix things up a little bit. Um, It's a crank neck chisel. And it's something that I never even knew existed until probably four or five years ago. Um, And the beauty of it is it gets the handle up off the piece of material, but you still have the full length of the chisel blade to register against whatever flat surface you have. So if you're trying to clean up, you know, a stop dado or inside a a corner, it's invaluable. And I I don't know how I got by without them in the past. I mean, you can always flip over your regular bench chisel and use the the bevel, but then you, you lose all that, you know, registering surface um, so I, that's, that's one that I happened to use in a recent project and was thinking to myself, what did I do before this? I hate this segment because now I feel like I need one of those. You have to have one. I bet you Pekovic has like 30 of them. not a good woodworker without one. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, Diami. Well, uh, what I'm t- going to talk about is my Woodpecker 640 Tri-Square. Okay. And I, I'm a big fan of the Woodpecker Tri-Squares to begin with, but the 640 is their tiny little one. That's, uh, it's a six-inch tri-square, so it's got six and a four-inch legs, and it's milled out of one piece of aluminum. Mm-hmm. And it's just a, it's a piece of art, and it is unbelievably accurate. It's got nice weight to it. Every time I take it out, I'm pleased to use it as a layout tool. It's my, certainly my favorite layout tool, period, and one of my favorite tools. Is it red? It is red. red yeah. They, they got, got a whole drawer red, full of red. That whole red they going. got that red thing going yeah. Those are great for opening paint cans. <laughs> <laughs> so is a crank neck That's chisel. what yeah. I was going to say. This is the crank neck chisel in these one. We actually have someone here who once opened a finishing can with, <laughs> with a turning gouge. Ooh. It was after work. <laughs> so Somebody here? I think it was a Friday. And so we came back into work in like on Monday, and the whole turning area was a mess. And I'm like... Hey, you know what's the problem? Why don't you clean up? Don't look at me. It wasn't no, me. it wasn't. I, I'm just. I'm not going to throw this guy under the bus. It was <laughs> like, yeah, I kind of had to drive myself to the, uh, you know, to the uh, emergency room. Not the emergency room, but the little, you know, the clinic, little clinic, really quick. And he had he had several stitches in his Ooh. hands. I'm yeah. so much more upset that he messed up the turning tool. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like the rest of it is just his due, his just that desserts. was karma. <laughs> yeah, right. exactly. Yeah. Um, my Matthew? favorite tool this week is actually not a tool I personally own yet, uh, but one day I will somehow get it out of the shop here at work. Oh, um, yeah. Oh, yeah. I got a truck now. It is the uh, 16-inch joiner that we have here oh, in the Italian shop. Italian made. Italian yeah. joiner. SCMI. It is a absolute thing of beauty to use and to adjust um, and to look at, and it's 16 inches wide. It's amazing. It's, and it's about eight feet long. It's yes, ridiculous. It's massive. And it is the two best woodworking tools I've ever used would be that joiner and an SCMI cross sliding table, uh, sliding table saw with like a 10 foot stroke. They were just absolutely, both of them are just a brilliant machines. Just makes woodworking easy. Well, it, yeah, we're kind of spoiled with that thing. It is. Yeah. What happens when, you know, when we like retire and you go back home to your, Six inch jointer. No, no, no. The next most tool. Folks have. The next tool on my list is a twelve inch jointer. I could live with twelve inch. Sixteen inches is mo- probably more than I need most of the time. Well, all right there, Mister Big Bucks. Yeah, you going well, used on that baby? Well, I think we've talked about this on the show on we the have? show before about that. I that I teach uh, woodworking classes mm-hmm. so that I can buy tools. Oh, true. All yeah. right, so you have your fund. Yes, um, we could get Sally Struthers to come on and. That's right. <laughs> Do a pledge drive for you. Yes. Poor Matt Kenny. I'm gonna start selling thigh masters on the streets <laughs> to raise money. All right, this is getting slightly disturbing. Um, I have a lot of them at home. Thigh masters? Yes. 
All right. Asa, <laughs> let's just ignore him. Let me pot down his mic. Hold on a moment. Uh, Asa? You what, had, you other, what was the other thing? There was a thigh master and then something else, like a butt buster or something. <laughs> the shake weight? Shake weight. Come on, let's <laughs> not go there. Let's definitely not go there. Um, all right, so uh, that's Coming hilarious, back on actually. Door. <laughs> it was a great... All right, not going there. So, uh, right, rewind. Edit that out. Um, mine is uh, seal coat shellac. It's a, I think of finishes, good finishes as tools, and... Um, I think Zinzer makes it. Is mm-hmm. that what it is? Yep. And uh, <laughs> now it seems boring. <laughs> seems boring. Listen, you know, not all of us want to talk about $8,000 jointers. Yeah, that we can't afford. Please, please. Nah. It's probably a $10,000 jointer. <laughs> it is. This is like a $7, 7 or $8 can of finish that is like the Wonder Finish. I, I use it a lot when I'm finishing because you can build up um, coats so fast with it, and it's... Uh, de-waxed so anything that goes on the top of any finish water base to oil to whatever can go right on the top of it if you have a tricky wood like it has sap in the wood or uh it it'll seal that up um if your wood is blotchy like if you're trying to get really nice cherry cherry and maple are notoriously blotchy that's the cure and it dries in about 15 minutes so you can put on like three or four coats in a session in the shop and you can put it on with a rag, with a brush, spray. You know, it's just a, it's an amazing wonder finish. And I tend to seal the wood almost always with that product. Now, one thing, a, a can of seal coat is more in the neighborhood of 15 to $16. Right. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for yeah, pooping a- on my point. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's a great point, Asa. I, I use seal coat a lot as a, as a sealer initially, but... When I'm running in crunch time and I have a project that's due, which happens far too often, I'll use it as the entire finish. Totally. And I can get 12 coats on in a day, yep. and it looks beautiful when you're done. It's beautiful. It's a nice finish. And yeah. everything but like a kitchen surface that you're going to be working on constantly with wet moisture, um, as opposed to dry moisture, uh, is um, <laughs> it, it's great for. It's, it's, it's fantastic. It's, well, she likes the wonder finish. Yeah, I use a seal coat as the basis for the finish I use on all sort of small things that aren't going to be handled a lot. And you can drink it. All right, ladies. You cannot drink it. Stand you can't? back. I do not think you can drink it. I think drink. you can. You'd have what? to use denatured alcohol and then... No, or, you can, you, 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 use, you uh, cannot uh, drink denatured no, alcohol. That'll kill you. Do that'll not, kill you. You can do drink, not do you that. Could, you can break down shellac flakes with real alcohol. Yeah, you can use like grain alcohol. You can use grain and alcohol. And you could actually Is denatured toxic? Oh, you, denatured yeah. makes yes. it denatured toxic. Will, yeah, it's you. real alcohol with basically with poisons put in it, so you can't drink it. Yeah. So stop okay. drinking the seal coat. All right, I better stop. Do not drink shellac. You can eat shellac, I think is what you're getting at, right? No, I meant drinking. I was just wrong. You don't have to try to save me. <laughs> um, so mine is uh, a good old-fashioned set of steel engineer squares. Uh, a just good old-fashioned set. A good old-fashioned... Fa- <laughs> <laughs> um, I like chaps. I don't know. <laughs> I, and chaps. <laughs> Why is this getting bad? <laughs> no, but because here's the deal. You get those really... Nice looking old. And why is an old guy liking chaps? (laughs) All right, anyway, go ahead. If you get those really nice looking old rosewood handled squares with the brass rivets and so on and so forth, and eventually I find that they they do come, they get a little wiggly on you over time. And a good steel engineer square, it's like, it's usually ASA would know because you're a former machinist. Is that one 
chunk of metal? I don't think so. Or is yeah, it two, put, so. it's two put together? It's usually two pieces, yeah. Well, anyhow. But it's ground. After they fabricate the thing, then it's ground to be precise. They're, you know, yeah, they're generally it. super accurate. They're not all that expensive. No. Um, and they last basically yeah. forever. If you, um, until you, you drop it on the floor. Well, so you can yeah. get engineer squares for a very low amount of money, or you can get them for a very high amount well, of money. Well, yeah, there yeah. are some that are, I guess, that are made specifically for machining, I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, anything called an engineer square should be okay. Hopefully, you know, if it's not square, you need to get a refund. Send it back. Well, I've yeah. got a car to sell you. Yeah. I mean, an engineer square. Yeah. Well, we have three of them in the shop here, and I, I love them. I grab them Do you have a time. favorite size? Like, I don't think you need I a love, whole set, right? I, no, I like the little, uh, little, I don't know how. How big is that? The two or three one? inch. It's like guy? two or three oh, inches. Look out, yeah. Ed! I know where you're where you're veering now. What's that? Into my tiny layout tools. Oh, I am definitely that veering obsession. into your tiny layout tools. I have. I think that I, I have punch. a uh, engineer square that maybe has a two inch blade on it. Oh. It's a tiny little thing. I, oh yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah those are fantastic. It is Everything's fantastic. cuter when it gets tiny. It is. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Um, well, uh, normally at this point in the show. Um, we like to read a few select quotes from our iTunes page. So I've got uh, a few here that uh, I'm going to read from the last week or so that came in from Thomas Porter. Um, After watching their videos and reading their articles, it's nice to know they're not stiff and infallible, except for Matt. They're real people doing an iPad added that myself by the way the real people doing an excellent podcast that in some ways is more instructive than the more formal approaches maybe there should be six stars from Leroy Lee great stuff so you guys make this mistakes guys too. laying it on a little thick a little <laughs> yeah. thick well, hey, 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 don't get me wrong we love it you <laughs> should have said what he heard what he said about me um, from Leroy Lee uh, great stuff so you guys make mistakes too that means I'm not alone Whew. Um, we make many mistakes Leroy uh, and finally tree not a forest wrote, I'm new to the podcast, am a beginning woodworker, but love reading and learning about making furniture. Your podcast has re-energized my learning and has taught me a ton just by listening to you guys chatter back and forth. Good example. I've been sharpening with sandpaper, doing the scary sharp thing. Bought a combination stone a while back, but had not used it much. Heard your discussion of that method and decided to give the stone a try. Used it to finish off my plain blades and holy CRA and another letter. What a difference. Little holy things. crap. Crab? <laughs> Yeah, all right. What a difference. (laughs) Little things mean a lot to us as we try and learn how to do things, and you guys fill in the gaps and probably don't even realize how helpful it is. The only thing I I would want to say to that guy Mm -hmm. is with sharpening... Are you going to poop on his point? No, I'm not. I'm not. Just just pick one method and learn to sharpen that way. Don't start jumping around and back and forth 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 I think what's going to happen is he's going to dump the not-so-scary sharp method with sandpaper and go with uh, stones. You... You can sharpen really sharp with sandpaper, but we'll leave that for another day. Yeah, Maybe that's a pins and oh, that's tails. a good pins versus tails. Yeah, so another day. All right, fellas. Well, that about wraps it up this week for Shop Talk Live. We'll be back again in two weeks on January 11th, 2013 for our next episode. Uh, in the meantime, show us a little love by leaving a comment on iTunes, and by all means, click that five-star rating. And thanks to the guys. Don't forget. Yes. It's not in the script. Thanks to the guys from MWA. Uh, Rob and Diami for uh, coming down here. One from Massachusetts. One took the ferry across in driving rain from Long Island to make it here. And I think uh, we owe him a big, huge thanks. It was a huge pleasure having you guys on. I think Long Island, that's somewhere near Mordor, isn't it? 
<laughs> yeah, ask my friends. It's always dark. Matt just saw The Hobbit. All right. But thanks, guys. Thanks a lot for coming. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you very much for having us on. And uh, if anybody wants to learn more about us, I just want to point them towards modernwoodworkersassociation.com. And we do our own podcast uh, complimenting this one every two weeks. And you can check that out at the website. Yep. And uh, you do a whole podcast where you say nice things about us? That's exactly it. It's it's the (laughs) Matt Kenny's a great guy show. Uh, I'll tell you what, Rob, read us off. Don't forget to send your questions and comments to shoptalk at taunton.com. You can catch the podcast via iTunes or stream it on your computer at www.shoptalklive.com. Cheers, everybody. <laughs>